Hello, this is Richard Zowie, and one of my things I'm trying to get into is reading audiobooks. Few people told me I would be good at it, so I'm going to do a, a demo. And I'm going to read the last section of the Stephen King novella, Apt Pupil. To set this in context for those not familiar with the story, Apt Pupil is about an all-American kid named Todd Bowden, who on his newspaper route discovers that one of his customers is not only a fugitive Nazi, but one of the camp commanders that the Israeli Mossad agency has been absolutely dying to find. And instead of turning him in, he blackmails him, says, tell me all the gruesome details the magazines won't say. And the kid thinks he's got this guy right where he wants him. Uh, Kurt Dusander is the real name, but he's living under the name Arthur Dinker in America. But Todd quickly realizes, grudgingly, that there is a reason Dusander has been on the run for 30 years. He's very smart and knows how to manipulate people. And Dusander, later in the story, his cover is blown. He commits suicide. And authorities start thinking that maybe Todd had something to do with the mysterious murders that took place that were attributed to Dusander, but they think that maybe Todd had something to do with them. And Todd's old guidance counselor from junior high, Ed French, is curious because Todd had issues and Todd sent Dusander to pretend to be his grandfather so that his parents would not find out what was going on. And so Dusander is dead. Ed French is putting things together that Todd may be more involved with these gruesome crimes than what the public realizes. And this is the last section of the book. Both of his parents had offered to cancel their afternoon plans. Monica at the market and Dick golfing with some business people and stay home with them. But Todd told them that he would rather be alone. He thought he would clean his rifle and just sort of think the whole thing over, try to get it straight in his mind. Todd, Dick said, suddenly found that he had nothing much to say. He supposed if he'd been his own father, he would have at this point advised prayer. But the generations had turned, and the Bowdens weren't much into that these days. Sometimes these things happen, he finished lamely, because Todd was still looking at him. Try not to brood about it. It'll be all right, Todd said. After they were gone, he took some rags and a bottle of alpaca gun oil out onto the bench beside the roses. He went back into the garage and got the thirty thirty. He took it to the bench and broke it down, the dusty sweet smell of the flowers lingering pleasantly in his nose. He cleaned the gun thoroughly, humming a tune as he did it, sometimes whistling a snatch between his teeth. Then he put the gun together again. He could have done it just as easily in the dark. His mind wandered free. When it came back some five minutes later, he observed that he had loaded the gun. The idea of target shooting didn't much appeal, not today, but he had still loaded it. He told himself he didn't know why. Sure you do, Todd baby. The time, so to speak, has come. And that was when the shiny yellow sob turned into the driveway. The man who got out was vaguely familiar to Todd, but it wasn't until he slammed the car door and started to walk toward him that Todd saw the sneakers. Low-topped kids, light blue. Talk about blasts from the past. Here, walking at the Bowden driveway, was Rubber Ed French, the Kedman. Hi, Todd. Long time no see. Todd leaned the rifle against the side of the bench and offered his wide and winsome grin. Hi, Mr. French. 
What are you doing out here on the wild side of town? Are your folks home? Gee, no. Did you want to talk to them for something? No, Ed French said after a long and thoughtful pause. No, I guess not. I guess maybe it would be better if just you and I talked. For starters, anyway, you may be able to offer a perfectly reasonable explanation for all this, although God knows I doubt it. He reached into his hip pocket and brought out a news clipping. Todd knew what it was even before Rubber Ed passed it to him, and for the second time that day, he was looking at the side-by-side pictures of DeSander. The one the street photographer had taken had been circled in black ink. The meaning was clear enough to Todd. French had recognized Todd's grandfather, and now he wanted to tell everyone in the world about it. He wanted to midwife the good news. Good old rubber Ed, with his jive talk and his motherfucking sneakers. The police would be interested, but of course, they already were. He knew that now. The sinking feeling had begun about 30 minutes after Rickler left. It was as if he'd been riding high in a balloon filled with happy gas. Then a cold steel arrow ripped through the balloon's fabric. And now it was sinking steadily. The phone calls. That was the biggie. Rickler had trotted them out just as slick as warm owl shit. Sure, he had said, practically breaking his neck to rush into the trap. He gets one or two calls a week. Let them go ranting all over Southern California looking for geriatric ex-Nazis. Fine. Except maybe they'd gotten a different story from Ma Bell. Todd didn't know if the phone company could tell how much your phone got used, but there had been a look in Rickler's eyes. Then there was a letter. He had inadvertently told Rickler that the house hadn't been burgled, and Rickler had no doubt gone away thinking the only way Todd could have known that was if he had been back. And he had been, not just once but three times, first to get the letter and twice more looking for anything incriminating. There had been nothing. Even the SS uniform was gone, disposed of by DuSander sometime during the last four years. And then there were the bodies. Rickler had never mentioned the bodies. At first, Todd had thought that was good. Let them hunt a little longer while he got his own head, not to mention his story straight. No fear about the dirt that had gotten on his clothes bearing the body. They had all been cleaned later that same night. He ran them through the washer-dryer himself, perfectly aware that Dusander might die and then everything might come out. You can't be too careful, boy, as Dusander himself would have said. Then... Little by little, he'd realized it was not good. The weather had been warm, and the warm weather always made the cellar smell worse. On his last trip to DeSanders' house, it had been a rank presence. Surely the police would have been interested in that smell, and would have tracked it to its source. So why had Rickler withheld that information? Was he saving it for later? Saving it for a nasty little surprise? And if Rickler was into planning nasty little surprises, it could only mean that he suspected. Todd looked up from the clipping and saw that Rubber Ed had half turned away from him. He was looking into the street, although not much was happening out there. Rickler could suspect, but suspicion was the best thing he could do. Unless there was some sort of concrete evidence binding Todd to the old man. Exactly the sort of evidence Rubber Ed French could give. Ridiculous man and a ridiculous pair of sneakers. Such a ridiculous man hardly deserved to live. Todd touched the barrel of the 3030.
Yes, Rub Red was a link they didn't have. They could never prove Todd had been an accessory to one of DeSanders' murders. But with Rub Red's testimony, they could prove conspiracy. And would even that end? Oh no. They would get his high school graduation picture next and start showing it to all the stew bums down in the Mission District. A long shot, but one Rickler could ill afford not to play. If we can't pin one bunch of winos on him, maybe we can get him on the other bunch. What next? Court next. His father would get him a wonderful bunch of lawyers, of course, and the lawyers would get him off, of course. Too much circumstantial evidence. He would make too favorable an impression on the jury. But by then, his life would be ruined anyway, just as DeSanders said it would be. It would be all dragged through the newspapers, dug up and brought into the light, like the half-decayed bodies in DeSanders' cellar. The man in the picture is the man who came to my office when you were in the ninth grade, Ed told him abruptly, turning to Todd again. He purported to be your grandfather. Now it turns out he was a wanted war criminal. Yes, Todd said. His face had gone oddly blank. It was the face of a department store dummy. All the healthiness, life, and vivacity had drained out of it. What was left was frightening in its vacuous emptiness. How did it happen? Ed asked, and perhaps he intended his question as a thundering accusation, but it came out sounding plaintive and lost and somehow cheated. How did this happen, Todd? Oh, one thing just followed another, Todd said, and picked up the thirty thirty. That's really how it happened. One thing just followed another. He pushed the safety catch to the off position with his thumb and pointed the rifle at Rubber Ed. As stupid as it sounds, that's just what happened. That's all there was to it. Todd, Ed said, his eyes widening. He took a step backwards. Todd, you, you don't want to... Please, Todd, we could talk this over. We can dis... You and the fucking Kraut can discuss it down in hell, Todd said and pulled the trigger. The sound of the shot rolled away in the hot and windless quiet of the afternoon. Ed French was flung back against his sob. His hand groped behind him and tore off a windshield wiper. He stared at it foolishly as blood spread on his blue turtleneck, and then he dropped it and looked at Todd. Norma, he whispered. Okay, Todd said. Whatever you say, champ. He shot Rubberhead again, and roughly half of his head disappeared in a spray of blood and bone. Ed turned drunkenly and began to grope toward the driver's side door, speaking his daughter's name over and over again in a choked and failing voice. Todd shot him again, aiming for the base of the spine, and Ed fell down. His feet drummed briefly on the gravel and then were still. Sure did die hard for guidance counselor, Todd thought, and brief laughter escaped him. At the same moment, a burst of pain as sharp as an ice pick drove into his brain and he closed his eyes. When he opened them again, he felt better than he had in months, maybe better than he had felt in years. Everything was fine. Everything was together. The blankness left his face and a kind of wild beauty filled it. He went back into the garage and got all the shells he had, better than 400 rounds. He put them in his old knapsack and shouldered it. When he came back out into the sunshine, he was smiling excitedly, his eyes dancing. It was the way boys smile on their birthdays, on Christmas, on the 4th of July. It was a smile that betokened skyrockets, treehouses, 
secret signs, and secret meeting places. The aftermath of the triumphal big game when the players are carried out of the stadium and into town on the shoulders of the exultant fans. The ecstatic smile of toe-headed boys going off to war in coal scuttle helmets. I'm king of the world, he shouted mightily at the high blue sky and raised the rifle two-handed over his head for a moment. Then, switching it to his right hand, he started toward that place above the freeway where the land fell away and where the dead tree would give him shelter. It was five hours later and almost dark before they took him down. The End <laughs>